So welcome back to the other half of the church who was gone last week at Ladies Retreat, heard some great testimonies. Hopefully we'll get to share one in service soon, but that's been, been delayed slightly. Thanks to um, Mika and all of her work. Family is now sick this weekend, so I guess we're pray, praising God that they were healthy last weekend for that, but pray for them and quick recovery. But thank you to Mika and the whole team uh, who put in so many hours of planning and preparation and prayer. Uh, it was truly a blessed time um, from what I hear, and I know uh, many could affirm that. So we are encouraged by that. If you missed it, um, there's other ways to get plugged in and connected and engaged and hope you will not miss it next year either. So also thank you to, uh, let's see, Daphne, Brenda, Christina. I know there's more on that team uh, who helped transform kind of our space and made it lovely in accordance with their gifting and also to bless those that gather here. So if you're newer to our family, this is a a new backdrop, a new um, decor and banners and those things, yeah, Catherine's pointing them out. Thank you. She's been surprised and blessed, as you can see. So I uh, hope you are as well. If you're a guest with us, welcome to our family. I hope you get that sense that we are a family. We're a community, uh, but we're not done growing. As God has a large family and wants to continue to adopt and invite in, so do we. And so we hope that you will sense uh, that move, moving in your heart and life. If you're looking for a, a home, a family, if you're looking for the perfect church, you'll need to keep looking. Uh, but if you're looking for a place that you might fit and be loved and seen grace in and be able to extend that to others. We believe God is doing that amongst us. Uh, Please get connected with us one way or another. Um, You can do it the old-fashioned way. There is actually a card in the pew back that says hello. You can say hello to us as some are already saying hello back. We welcome that family voice and it means life and we're good good with that. So say hello, put an email, a name, even if you're visiting or just passing through, you're out of town visiting. We love to see where people are coming from and send a hello back to you. Uh, If you want to be on an ongoing update list. There's a box for that. So if you're one of those nervous people of, I don't want to give info because of what am I going to be signed up for? Or what list? Or am I going to be on a mailing list and get stuff? Not from us unless you ask for it. We're inviting you to engage in the back and forth, uh, but at your level and your pace. So if you're will, willing to do that, and uh, please use that for prayer requests and, and things too. I know many of you do that and drop it in the, one of the boxes here in the front or on the, in the back on the way out today. Um, and if you're looking for ways and ministries and programs or things that are happening, we have some of that. Some of it's highlighted here in the bulletin, but we'd love to be able to communicate more of that with you if you're looking for a church home and family. So welcome. Be at home. Be welcomed. We have a cool opportunity this morning uh, to hear from a way that God is at work uh, equipping in our region. We often like to highlight what's happening in our greater family and in our field, which is a language we would use uh, kind of to represent the, the larger working of God through his churches, the Alliance churches in our region, Washington, Oregon, and Idaho. And we're, there's one right down the street that's seen God work in some incredible ways, and I want to highlight that. But first, I'm going to pray and send off our kids to their classes because they might feel enriched in that way and are not quite ready for a secondary education degree, but we'll see. So let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are, what you have done, and for the reminder of that this morning. We have the privilege to come and to hear from you, from your word, and be encouraged by your presence with us. We become your, your temple, you say. Paul reminds us of that. Your, the indwelling of your Holy Spirit is ours to be known and to experience. And I pray that it would this morning, that you would speak to each heart and each mind who is gathered here today 
reminding them of how deeply you love them, have been drawing them and calling them forever into relationship with you to be adopted as sons and daughters into your family, to receive an inheritance that we can't even imagine that's beyond us. Would you grow our capacity to understand who you are, to know this hope, to know the riches of your grace, to know the immeasurable power that you have offered to us who believe. So we are your temple, Lord. Fill us. We have no other hope apart from that. And we respond now for your glory, knowing it is to our joy. We pray for our kids as they go to engage you, to see you, and pray for those who lead them and point them to you through your word. Would you fill their hearts also, we pray. In your name, Jesus, amen. Kids, four through fourth grade, welcome to go to your class. I'm gonna invite up Steve Hunter. Steve, come and share with us what God is doing right down the road. Got to get to know Steve a little bit better, and we had coffee a couple weeks ago, and I said, hey, you've got to come and just share. I've been aware of this ministry and uh, what's happening at Snoqualmie Valley for uh, a couple years now, uh, but I wanted you to come and share with those who don't know. And I bet there's many who don't know what is happening. Steve's from Snoqualmie Valley Alliance, our sister church, uh, right down the road, just in the valley outside of Fall City. So welcome to this family. You're really Thank a you. part of this family, but welcome today. And share with, uh, with us this ministry that's happening that's by us. Great. How many of you have heard of the Bible Institute of Seattle? Okay, we have a couple couple. of you have. Uh, There's a stat that I heard last year that I think is kind of staggering, and that is there is a need for 5,400 pastors in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, whether they're missionaries, whether someone is new, someone's retiring, whatever the stat is, 5,400 pastors pastors are needed in the marketplace. There are a lot of big schools that are out there, but we think there's space at the table for something a little bit different, and that's what BIOS is. So we are on the Snoqualmie Valley Alliance campus, so that's about 20 minutes away. So just down the street, uh, right below the falls, so about a mile and a half from Snoqualmie Falls. And the By the Bi- way, the traffic isn't as bad going that way as it is if you're going to Seattle for school, right? Just, just saying. Definitely. <laughs> for, for someone that's worked in Seattle, I can definitely vouch for that. And, and, and so here, here's the thing that's a little bit unique about what we're doing. We work with uh, the Northwest Alliance and, and with the national office to put together a program to help people be pastors and missionaries in the marketplace. So we describe it as being field ready. So when someone graduates, they are ready to go. We want them to be licensed and ordained in CMA, or if they're from another denomination, be prepared for that. And we think that this is the clincher. We want them to be debt-free when they graduate. So I'm sure you've heard, you know, with people going to school, there are so many students that have five and six figures in debt. How can somebody be a pastor or a missionary and have that kind of debt and be locked into that? So the way things work for us, Uh, because of the connection that we have with one of the Alliance schools, and that's Crown College, the combination of what we offer allows our students to be able to graduate with an accredited degree, four years, but be able to do so by paying only 25K or a little bit less. We think that's a game changer in the marketplace. Most of our students... The way they pay this, because we have our classes in the evening from five to nine, two days a week, they can work during the day. So it makes it easier for them to be able to pull this off. That's awesome. 
Give us a, so you've been around a couple of years. Right. Give us a snapshot of what that community looks like, who's walking through that process now. So we have our third cohort that, it, that is going through the program right now. So basically we've got three years of students Plus, we also have students that are auditing courses, which I think is actually pretty cool. So lay leaders, people either from our church or surrounding churches that are wanting enrichment, or if they're lay leaders and want to go a little deeper, we offer courses like that. So I'm going to run through some yeah. of the courses that we're offering for spring. Yeah, because I think it's great to hear, oh, that's awesome. I mean, what a ministry. And I've got someone I know or a nephew or a friend or Maybe it's even stirring in you that you haven't, you've been wondering where God might equip you further. And is God calling me into more ministry? What would that look like at any age and stage? So that's awesome. But if you're not, if you don't have that call, but you want to go deeper, Mm -hmm. how how could you engage besides just a knowledge of, oh, that's good. It's happening down the street. But wait a minute, how could I get involved with this? There's room for us to get involved? Definitely. There's definitely room for that. You know, if someone uh, wants to get a degree, we love that. And we definitely would like to talk to you. But if someone wants just to audit a class, this is what the breakdown looks like for our spring session that starts on April 1st. Okay. We're offering New Testament survey. So this gives you an overview of what is, what's going on in the New Testament. Many may know that, but this goes a little bit deeper. And, and you can walk away very well equipped with that. Uh, Hebrews in the general epistles, so this is a deep dive into James, First and Second Peter, Hebrews, of course. Um, Theology 3, which is one of our ordination track classes, which there's a series of five that prepares someone for their ordination interview. Uh, we have Holy Spirit-Empowered Ministry. This is a great course. As a matter of fact, Monty Wright has recommended that our leadership team go through this. Because uh, A.B. Simpson, the founder of our movement, he really focused on a deeper life. And Holy Spirit Empowered Ministry is a focus on that deeper life, which we think this is going to be a class that a lot of people audit. Then, um, then another class we're doing is a little different. We're, we're in the midst of putting this together right now. We're close to having it completed. We'll have it ready on April 1st. And it's called The Practical Pastor. And what's unique about this one is there's a lot of things that you don't learn in seminary. No. And you kind of learn. (laughs) You you can vouch for that, yeah. And and I found the same thing, too. I'm also on staff with with SVA. And and there are things that you kind of learn along the way. We think that, that there are some tasks and some things that you're involved with, such as if somebody gets bad news, how do you work with them? Or if there's a funeral that needs to be done, or how do you officiate a wedding? Instances like that, that's what the practical pastor is about. And, and again, that's for pastors and lay leaders, and we think that that's something that, that will make a difference. That's awesome. So you're wetting the appetite maybe for some who are inclined to that kind of learning. April 1st, that's coming up. So is there a deadline I mean, how, to audit? It must be coming up right away here. Yeah, and I would say if one of you are interested, let me know, and I'd be glad to share the information. Mm-hmm. And here's the cool thing. We think the best way to get to know us is to sit in on a class. And so we have classes that are going on right now. And, and if you're curious about this, connect with me, and I'd be glad to tell you about that. And again, it's on Monday and Thursday evenings from 5 to 9. So again, it makes it accessible for people that are working during the day. Okay. Thank you, Steve. Steve's got a table out there. You probably saw it on the way in, but he's got some uh, brochures as well as schedules and any more info you need from Steve. So stop by, at least say hi afterward if it's stirring something in you. So thank and you, I have Steve. plenty of applications as well. There you go.
for next year, right? Absolutely. I mean, for the next quarter. Okay, thank you so much, Steve. Glad you're here. I'll take that because I'm going to pass it over to Pastor Craig. Yep. Craig's going to come and read, get into Ephesians. So maybe your bookmark's already there, your ribbon's already there, your thumb's already there, or you're going to get there on your device here in short order. Craig will tell you what page. Well, fun day as we enter into a new study. And uh, what an amazing one. Looking forward to this greatly. Um, the book of Ephesians, uh, you'll find uh, this passage. If you don't have your Bible with you, the rack Bibles are the black ones uh, in the racks in front of you. You'll find this on page 976. So I was considering, you know, in preparation this morning of reading this, uh, how, do we, how do we bring this closer? Uh, I think there's a, um, maybe an opportunity here. And I want to lean on and ask you to uh, use your imaginations this morning. How might this read differently if uh, the Apostle Paul himself was coming here this morning to share this word with us? So consider that. Give me a little latitude here with the text to maybe make that happen. And let me prime your imaginations. So if you think about the historical paintings and images of the Apostle Paul, he was a smaller man. Balding, had a little beard. <laughs> you know, we, we know from reading the scripture that he was someone who was common to giving way to tears. Um, wrote boldly, right? But in person was perhaps a little bit more meek. And so I know that stretches your imagination, but try, if you will, and, uh, and, and work with me here. So we're going to look at chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I think Paul might say this. Greetings, I'm Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I first delivered this word to the saints that are in Ephesus. This morning, I bring it to you the saints in Redmond who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. 
in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Thank you, Paul. I mean, Craig. (laughs) If Paul was here, I would not be getting up to this music stand. You'd have another preacher and be much more thankful for him. You know, some of you have been born into a relatively rich lifestyle. Some of you have received a relatively lavish inheritance. Others expect one might come. Uh, Others of you, not so much. You've worked hard your whole life, and everything you have is from your own labors and your own toil, and you wonder if that's even enough. But it is relative. All wealth is relative. Uh, Relative to the history of the world and the global economy, simply to live in the area that we do, in the era that we do, we are some of the richest people who have ever lived. And why doesn't it feel like it? Is it because you don't have your own private jet or own your own island or your Tesla doesn't have a hot tub in it yet? No, it's because worldly wealth never satisfies and it's all relative. We are always relating to others in our wealth. And there's always a need for more if wealth, inheritance, doesn't satisfy. The richest man, some would argue, who ever lived, lived in the late 1800s and early 1900s by uh, cumulative world wealth standards. That's why he's not even measured by our current leader in that front. John D. Rockefeller, you know, when he was asked, how much is enough? With how much he had, already the richest man in the world, he famously said just one penny more, just one dollar more. And he did continue to work somewhat ruthlessly to continue to advance. And then, amazingly, gave much of his wealth away. Without diving into his story, it's a unique one, but it's a picture. And considering our current leader, Jeff Bezos, I often joke, why is Jeff still working? He is, apparently has $135.5 billion or so at his disposal, which I did some quick math. If he lives to be 90 and he's 55 today and he's never to make another penny through investment or any other efforts, he would need to spend $10.5 million a day, $440,000 an hour to run out of money. And I shared that stat with my wife, and then she said, yes, but he's going through a divorce. <laughs> Why is he still working? And while we cannot probe his heart or his mind, and we can our own, and we should, uh, Google has the answer. If you Google Jeff Bezos, 
And it doesn't answer in the way that you might think I'm going here. Uh, probably second or third on your autofill list is Jeff Bezos' net worth. That's the word that we use in our culture, and we're so used to it that we don't even pause anymore to consider the ramifications and even the perversity of that word. No amount of zeros, no number with a dollar sign attributes the worth of a person. And yet in our culture, it does. We're used to using that term and that language. And again, not knowing Bezos, his heart, his mind, and not wanting to point fingers, although that's easy to do and easier than pointing to our own heart and our own mind. If worldly wealth does not satisfy And even if Jeff is no longer working for more money, what is he longing for? There's a natural question. If if nothing on earth satisfies, maybe we need to leave this world. Is it for power? Is it for influence? What are we striving for? If we're going to bring this to to our own hearts, what are we striving for for fulfillment and satisfaction? What are we longing for? And even when we come to know it's not in worldly or earthly riches, yet we still can become captivated and consumed. Or maybe it's in a pursuit of some form of power or control or influence. They tend to be toward the top of the list or at least main ingredients to the recipe. And amazingly, the Apostle Paul writes about these very themes, riches and power. Over a dozen times in this short letter, he hammers on these themes. And what's more amazing is he doesn't tell God's people to avoid them, to be poor, to be weak or meek. He does warn against greed. But what he is hammering on is that God's people, you, are already rich and powerful in a way that this world could never know and never imagine outside of Christ. That's what he is reminding the church. You are rich and you are powerful beyond and greater than any worldly wealth or earthly power. You have been adopted into a lavish inheritance. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. That's how he begins. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 3, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. And on and on he goes. Welcome to Ephesians. May we allow the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to captivate our hearts this morning and the weeks and months ahead, Lord willing. Ephesians has been called, I like this quote, pound for pound, the richest document ever written. This morning, we're merely dipping our toes into the pool to test the water. A bit of an overview for you. Uh, Paul speaks of Many themes, but I want to center us around this theme 
of riches and power because I think it's so important, in fact, crucial for us today as we make some parallel lines between us and the Ephesian church as Pastor Craig has already begun to do. This theme, these themes, riches and power, come together in Paul's two prayers that we see in chapter 1 and chapter 3. And I want us to see them again. I say again because they've been uh, recurrent themes and prayers for us really the last year and a half as we've been marching our way through Acts with an eye toward Ephesians, and today is the day. But these themes come together, and they truly reveal his heart, his passion, and his purpose in writing this letter to his beloved friends in Ephesus. So here, chapter 1, I'll jump around slightly, but beginning in verse 16, Paul's prayer, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that you may know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. And then in chapter 3, verse 14, he prays again, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Our world is longing and languishing for riches and for power, and Paul teaches us where and how to find them both, in Christ and Christ alone. Everything earthly will only temporarily fill and satisfy, and then it will fade and leave you longing for more. This phrase, in Christ, or in Jesus, is common throughout Paul's writings, but in Ephesians, it just explodes. 27 times in six chapters. Another nine times he's referring to our union in Christ. And maybe we have this backwards In our current evangelical culture, when we have been taught or teach to have Christ in us, to receive Christ in us, and while the Scripture does teach that about five times, hundreds of times, we are told we are in Christ. There's a limit to who Christ is, at least in my mind, if he is only in me. But if I am in him, the creator of all things, there is no limit. Let's at least rightly emphasize, as Scripture does, as it is not wrong to say, Christ, come into my life, into my heart. But let's emphasize, and we will throughout this series that we are in Christ, and that's what makes us. That is our identity. That is our hope. That is the riches that we long for, the fulfillment of all things. Here's a snapshot. In Christ, this comes up in Ephesians, you are saints. Believe it or not, you are, merely, you are a holy one. You're set aside because you are in Christ, not because of you, not because of anything you have done or haven't done, 
but because of Christ. You are saints. You are blessed. You are adopted. You are chosen. You are lavished with love. In Christ, you are redeemed and forgiven. You are participants in God's plan. You are glorified in Christ. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you are created. You are made alive. You are brought near to God. You are growing. You are being built up. You are recipients of every one of God's promises. Jesus is the answer to our deepest longing. He is the giver of all grace. He is the author of salvation. He is the bestower of all blessings. He is the source of all riches and power. He is the redeemer, revealer, ruler, and reconciler. Welcome to Ephesians. If if this letter is not the richest and most powerful one ever written, it is right toward the top of the list And yes, we've been anticipating studying it for a year and a half. So consider that the world's longest sermon series introduction as we've followed the story of the Holy Spirit's work in and through the apostles and the early church as it exploded from Jerusalem and rippled across the landscape of the world. And about 20 years later, Paul is writing this letter to a church that he planted, Acts 19, And now we have a little bit of context to enter in. I'll give you a little more as we progress. But it's been a long wait for some, and I would say it will be worth the wait. That the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened. And so with a little bit of pent-up energy to expound on this, I try to also join in with Paul, who I believe writes with this pent-up energy as he has been imprisoned longing for loving his dear friends in Ephesus and certainly other churches that he had seen planted and grown, but he spent more time in Ephesus than any other place. Up to over three years he was with these people. And the last time we saw him, he was saying goodbye to them in Acts 20 and weeping. They were all filled with tears, not a dry eye. It just indicates the heart and the relationship that Paul had with these people. And now for years, uh, somewhere a little uncertain, six, seven, up to ten years later, He is now pouring out his heart, writing back to his friends, and it seems that he writes with an urgency and with a passion, and uh, Craig helped us try to sense that. As he is in Rome, in prison, uh, probably not a a barren cell like we might imagine, uh, but he's under house arrest. He's being guarded day and night, maybe at times in chains, but otherwise uh, maybe free to move about uh, the prison and at this point, imagine him in his, in his room, his sequestered room, and his friend Tychicus is there with him. He mentions him at the end of the letter, and perhaps he says, Tychicus, get this down. And so Tychicus starts to write and scribe for him, and you see Paul just pacing back and forth and growing in animation, gesticulating and pointing, and you see Tychicus like just trying to catch up. There is no time for punctuation Spelling corrections or periods. And this has been seen by scholars and studied uh, for, well, centuries now, that verses 3 through 14 are one sentence. So almost the entirety of what Craig read this morning, if you look at your English translations, you see punctuation and capitalization. It wasn't so in the Greek anyway, so I'm making a little bit of a joke. But as, as it has been translated and looked at for, for out, throughout these millennia, Scholars believe this is just one long sentence, and so much of Ephesians is one train of thought. So have that at least in your mind and pictured as we receive this, 
this pent-up emotion and energy and passion. I mean, if you know anything about Paul, you already know. I mean, this shouldn't be that much of a surprise. He's a driven and passionate man. I mean, for the majority of his life, he had, was driven and passionate and zealous to actually persecute the church, the blasphemers who were proclaiming that Jesus was God, believing himself to actually be serving God, a faithful, righteous, devout man, and that it was his duty to chase down, to imprison, to persecute, and even to oversee the killing of Christians. Well, God had a plan for him. Jesus came and arrested his life, blinded him in order that he would see, and ultimately sent him on a mission with the fullness of the gospel, the mystery that has now been made known to him. And he now lives the rest of his life with a passion and an urgency that all people would come to know and to hear this gospel that he has been blessed with. He says this in Ephesians 3, verse 7 and following. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery that has been hidden for ages in God but is now being revealed. You see his heart for God's people just being poured out in this city and this church that he loves deeply. So he's in prison. We don't know for how long. Tychicus comes and gives him an update from, of what's happening in Ephesus. What could he have heard that would lead to him writing like this, speaking like this, pouring out his heart with this sense of urgency and passion for his beloved friends? If you study the letter, and we will, but scholars point out there's no major divisions or crises or sinful issues that Paul is addressing and rebuking. If you compare this to some of his other letters, Corinth, for example, he wrote many times letters to the Corinthians, and it was filled with specific issues, divisions, quarreling, fighting, sin that Paul is addressing, correcting, shaping. Not so in Ephesus, not, not that they didn't have their own issues, but that's not what he is addressing. He, and yet it could be argued that he writes with an urgency and a passion that is unmatched. So what could he have heard? What could, what, 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 what could Tychicus have told him that would lead him to respond like this? Something critical of nature, urgent. Paul reminds them, this is the center of what his letter is he reminds them who they are what's their identity who are they here's who you are because of who god is because of what he's done therefore this is how you must live that's how his letter lays out for us really half and half the first three chapters he hammers on the gospel who you are because of who god is and what he's done the second half the last three is therefore how you must live. So vital that we get that order correct, by the way. If this is what he's writing, 
If that's the center of his message, a reminder for his beloved friends, here's who you are. Because of what God has done, these are things that you already know, but I'm here to remind you because you have drifted. You have forgotten. You are drifting. And Paul was right. Because a couple decades later, another letter was written. Paul was long dead. But God wasn't done with his church in Ephesus. And Jesus himself wrote a letter to the church in Ephesus. Are you aware of that? It's at the very end of our book. It's in Revelation. In fact, Jesus wrote seven letters to seven churches, and the church at Ephesus was one of them, Revelation chapter 2. Paul was on to the very thing that Jesus will come and now speak to them a couple decades later. This is written through the apostle John while he was imprisoned in Patmos. Revelation 2, verse 1 and following. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write this. So this is being given to John. These are the words of Jesus himself, the senior pastor of every church. He says, I know your works, you Ephesians. I know your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, And you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be false. I know you have endured patiently and you're bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. That's high praise. I mean, I want to hear those things. As a pastor, you as a church would want to hear some of those things. Compare this letter to maybe the letter he wrote to the Laodiceans. So there's high praise here for this church. But here's where it shifts. But, verse 4, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the works you did at first. For if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. There still seems to be no major crisis or division or major sin as we might describe it. And yet this church has drifted. It has abandoned its first love, the love it had its first for God, for one another, maybe even more significantly for the lost multitudes in the region that they were planted in. It has drifted, and Jesus calls them to turn and repent, to come back to him. That drift doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen for any people or any church. How long does it take for love to grow cold? For hearts to become calloused? For hope to dwindle? For the power and transforming life of Jesus and the Holy Spirit to fade in a culture and a context that is dark and living in darkness and growing ever darker? But Paul recognizes its beginning as he writes with urgency to the Ephesians. Right on, through the inspiration of the Spirit. He doesn't write with harsh words or strong rebukes, but he writes with this passion. Beloved, you are the adopted sons and daughters of God. You are like royalty. Remember your position. Know your identity. I'm calling you because of what God has done. He has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has chosen us that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. And therefore, if this is who you are because of what God has done, here is how you live. This is where it turns and shifts. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, as a prisoner for the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy 
It'll be a while before we dig into that passage. I think Paul is speaking doublespeak here. As a prisoner for the Lord, obviously he's a prisoner, but he's saying, you too, as a prisoner for the Lord, you essentially share my chains. You have been captivated by him. He is your master. As a prisoner for the Lord, then live a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. I'll continue to return to that theme. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And he ends with his final words, chapter 6, grace and peace to you who love with an undying love. He is calling them to the love of God to be expressed to one another and to the lost in, his, in their region. And so Paul, writing through the inspiration of the eternal Holy Spirit, and though he's writing to a church 2,000 years ago uh, across or around the world from where we sit today, at first might seem like we couldn't be any further chronologically, geographically, socially, culturally, economically, and yet, as we look into their story, as we have in our journey through Acts, perhaps there's more similarities than we first think. And so for any church throughout history who finds itself potentially drifting, for any church throughout history who finds that their love is growing cold toward God or one another, or the lost in their region. For any church who finds themselves in the absolute minority in a culture because they believe and proclaim Jesus as God, the crucified and risen Savior and King. For any church who wrestles with forgetting who they are in Christ and for any of God's people who struggle with the lure of earthly riches and power, of trusting them and those things to be the source of fulfillment or satisfaction, for any church throughout history that might resonate with any or all of those, receive Paul's words written to us, to the saints in Redmond, in the east side, in the greater Seattle area, and we were reminded when we looked in Acts 19 uh, who this city was and who these people coming out of and living amongst this city was in Ephesus. It was the commercial and financial center of the region. Ancient Greece in those days, today modern day eastern Turkey on the shores of the Aegean Sea. It was one of the largest and most influential cities in the Roman Empire it was a leading and cutting-edge port city. Hmm. It was known for its arts, its entertainment, and enlightenment. It had a state-of-the-art amphitheater, maybe unmatched throughout the region, 25,000 seats. It had one of the world's largest libraries. It had a renowned and famous market where tourists and tradesmen came and flocked to day in and day out, often smelling like fish and flowers. The world's first Starbucks was there. 
Ephesus was also very spiritual with various temples and eclectic religious practices. The iconic temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. On New Year's Eve, it would be illuminated by thousands of LEDs and pyrotechnics as the people gathered in celebration. By the way, in that day, the first of the year was always on Caesar's birthday. Artemis was the Greek goddess of fertility. Interestingly, and you may remember this, this temple of worship was also a bank. In fact, the richest bank maybe in the entire Roman Empire. People came and deposited money to get in, earn interest. They came for loans and received. I guess having the goddess of fertility over your finances was a good thing or considered a blessing and multiplication potential. But it was also not just a temple and a bank. It was like an art gallery, maybe unmatched throughout the region, possessing some of the wealthiest and finest paintings and sculptures the world had to offer. So if we could summarize, the Ephesians were a people consumed with entertainment, with arts and with education, with money, with sex, and with pleasure, with blurred lines between them. A people striving for riches and for power, and accustomed to worldly wealth and wonder. So no wonder that Paul wrote to them in chapter 2, the church, and said, you are the temple. You are God's temple being built together to be filled with his glory and his power. What an image, what a picture, so important for them and close to their heart. So if only we could find ways to resonate with these people and receive these words, this urgent and passionate plea and reminder that God wanted to speak to his church through his servant Paul. Perhaps we'd be ready to receive the heartbeat of his message. I'll read a little bit more from chapter 1, verse 11. So hear it now with those ears, with, those, with that heart as a reminder. In Christ we we all have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things in accordance with the counsel of his will. Those are some major themes. Stay tuned. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ, Paul's now speaking of probably him and the apostles, the early church that the Holy Spirit came upon in Jerusalem. We who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, but in him you also, you Gentiles, everyone, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let me try to capture these words for us today, if I can paraphrase and maybe summarize, and I'll read this. You're surrounded by a world and a culture that is longing for fulfillment, for satisfaction, and for happiness in earthly things. Riches, power, pleasure. But you, you have had your eyes opened. You've been adopted as sons and daughters of God with the full inheritance of a king given to you. He has poured out his spirit into your heart. You have come to know the source of true wealth and true worth. In fact, he is building you into his temple. 
Far greater than any worldly wonder, he will fill you with himself. Greater than the riches and power the world can offer. So be filled with his spirit. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. It's who you are because of who God is and what he has done. Your eyes and your hearts are drifting. You're being slowly lured by the sirens of our culture who call you toward their riches and power and pleasure. No, you have a far greater calling which you can live in fullness and faithfulness because you are already rich and powerful in Christ. If this is who we are because of who God is and what he has done, this is how we live. We receive the inheritance by faith. We invest it by our works. And that order is so critical. When Paul hammers the first three chapters, he's writing on the indicatives. These are indicative of who you are. These are the truths of the gospel and therefore the truths of who you are. The second half is the imperatives. So then, live this way. Do this. That order is so crucial and there is so much richness in chapters four through six. So many t-shirt verses and coffee cup verses Bumper stickers and keychains and placards and everything else. And I'm not saying that's wrong, but if you don't understand the first three chapters, then that's just something you are adding on to your life as a mantra or a must that can be a burden or a requirement that can be religious in nature. If you understand the indicatives, here's who you are. Therefore, the imperatives our responses, our longings, our callings. And the human nature wants to reverse that naturally. You, what must I do to be accepted by this God? What, 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 what are the rules of this faith in order I could have this inheritance, this hope, these riches, this glory, this satisfaction that you are talking about? Give me the rules and the requirements. What do I need to look like? How do I need to speak? What do I need to believe in order to be accepted and belong? And Paul says, no. It's all about God, Jesus, and his Holy Spirit. It's what he has done. Here's who you are. Receive it. Believe it. Know it. Then live like it. Tell you what, church, I think we need to hear that. That's the gospel. It's the only hope that we have. And remember that Paul is writing to believers maybe some of the strongest believers anywhere in the region. They know the Bible. They know the Lord. They've been walking with him in faithfulness. They've been firm. They've been true. They've protected against false teaching and error. They're grounded. And Paul writes this way. So receive it, church. He writes the gospel. He proclaims the gospel. He preaches the gospel again and again. But let's get that order right, just like Jesus said. If you love me, then you will obey me. Jesus did not come to establish religion, but to redeem and to invite people into a relationship. Come, follow me, and I will make you. We get that order from Paul too in chapter five. Even amongst the imperatives, he says, be imitators of God, imperative, but because you are beloved children. Walk in love, imperative, 
Because Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. That's why you can imitate God and walk in love because it's already been done for you. This is how we receive and engage this letter. Riches and power are already ours. Believe it, know it, then live like it. Enough for today. Let's bring the team up and respond to this. How can we respond today? I guess it depends how you're hearing these words. If you're hearing them and you know, you know that you are lost, or you have a sense that you are an orphan, that could take many forms and contexts. You feel like you don't have a place. You feel far from God. Perhaps you're here and you wonder about those things, but what you don't wonder about is that nothing earthly has ever satisfied you. And you've experienced and achieved or received much. Yes, relative, but relative, you know it is lavish. And yet it has not fulfilled and you find a longing in your heart that cannot be satisfied. The call is to repent, and that word probably has been abused. It simply means to turn, to turn from the pursuit of something that cannot ever satisfy, turn toward someone who can. Repent and come to Jesus, the only source of life and hope. Come to know the riches of this inheritance And if you do, you are chosen. You are his. And he has known this from the beginning of time and is drawing you today. And you could even go through the exercise of why are you even here today? What had to happen in your life to move you, to shift you, to get you sitting in this turquoise pew, which is not all that comfortable? How did you get here if not for God's incredible love and pursuit that you would hear his calling through his servant? Respond to him. Practically, you can do that in a couple ways. You can fill out a card, that card I referenced earlier. There's a box that says, I've surrendered to Jesus. And if that's all you know, we would love to connect with you and walk with you and explore what that looks like. More significant than that card is what, what this table means. As you come to this table, it's the bread and it's the cup. And it's the picture of what Jesus said to his disciples the night before he was crucified on the cross. He took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you, his life given for you. And he gave it to them and they ate because they loved him. They had no real full awareness of all that he was going to do, but they loved him and they received from him. And so if that's you, you come, his life for you. We're told to do this in remembrance because we're so prone to forget. That's why we do it every week because we forget week on and week, week out. And the cup reminds us of his blood shed. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. Life is in the blood, we're told. It's a symbol, it's a picture, but it's a movement toward him. As he has been drawing you, come draw near to him. So anytime as in, during these songs, come to this table, there's elements there in the back you can draw to and receive. Maybe individually, maybe with those around you, maybe with your family or someone you came with take a step toward Jesus. That's a response. For those of you who doubt any of this, who hear Paul's message and want to shake it off or dismiss it, I just invite you to read it. If you haven't yet done so, read it in its fullness this week, and I invite you to come back next week. My words mean very little, unless they are the very words of God 
proclaimed and sustained for 2,000 years. And for the rest in this room, if we are already believers, where has our love grown cold? Will we even be bold enough to ask that question of the Lord? Lord, would you show me how I've drifted or my heart has hardened for you, for one another, for lost people? Where I have become consumed with the riches or the pleasures or the power that this world tries to offer and I've seen my gaze or my heart drift, convict me, Lord, I repent and I turn and I come back to you. Our world is still languishing, lost, and living in darkness. And we have the message of hope and life and light to share. And so be the church. Welcome in, kiddos. Let's respond to all that God is doing with humility, with transparency, with passion, and with hope. Lead us on, team.